Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're talking about an agile approach to real estate investing. And joining me today is Grant Humphreys, who is president of Humphreys Capital. And we're going to talk a little bit about his company's unique approach. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be with you. So to kick us off, can you give us a little bit of background on Humphreys Capital? How, how long has the sure. company been around? So Humphreys Capital is a multi-fund manager based in Oklahoma City. We've got a team of 25 people, and I'm a third-generation real estate um, investor and also a developer. Um, Humphreys Capital came to be about seven years ago to manage the Humphreys Real Estate Income Fund, what we call HREF. And HREF actually came together just over 10 years ago when we rolled up several dozen family partnerships that we had had since the early 80s. And we put those together into one uh, diversified fund and then continued to grow it out of that. And we can talk about that as we get in. It started as a $50 million um, uh, corpus or kind of you know initial set of, of properties that were primarily uh, triple net lease uh, in the convenience space. And it's grown to over 1.2 billion in AUM now. Wow. Okay. That's quite a bit of growth. So is the fund open-ended? Is it an ongoing open fund? Yeah. So we're one of those unique um, unicorns. Uh, and I just say that just in that we didn't fit into um, the mold initially. Um, and it's an open-ended private REIT held by a partnership. And so we're perpetual life. And um, we've got a quarterly valuation process, but we're not publicly traded or NAV. Um, and we intentionally, as an income fund, we focus on providing a strong distribution. So we pay out um, an enhanced dividend and have, uh, since the beginning every month, our investors are receiving a distribution check. And we think that, that putting that income back in the hands of the investors is uh, kind of a hallmark or a central element of HREF. Yeah, that's probably, uh, you know, that's music to the ears of a REIT investor, you know, returning income in the form of, of, of dividends. So one thing that I think is interesting about Humphreys Capital is, you know, from your website, you're partnering with experienced developers to acquire, develop, operate those income producing multi-sector properties. And I know you operate in a few different sectors, industrial, multifamily, office, and retail. So right, right off the bat, like you said, that the unicorn um, diversified into all those sectors. But I have to ask, you know, given current market conditions, the, those four sectors are sort of all over the map. Is is there more of a specific focus right now? You know, as at the end of 2022. Sure. Well, you know, in the last couple of years, we've adjusted, and this has been something we've done from the beginning. When HREF was first formed, like I mentioned, we were. 100% allocated into triple net lease space. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of those deals, those partnerships were first put together in the 80s and 90s when cap rates were at 11 percent. Sure. So 10 and 11 percent, something that, you know, at least a, a generation or two can't even fathom. But that's where it was at the time. And we put that together. By 2012, the cap rates had come down quite a bit. And we thought we need to diversify away from just triple nets and we need to look for opportunities in other sectors. And so we started to evolve. And I think that's probably what this conversation will be about is how um, important it is to have agility in a real estate portfolio that can diversify its risk across markets, across strategy, across sectors, so that it has the ability to pivot with market you know, fluctuations and economic cycles. So when we started in 2012, we were 100% on the triple net lease side. By 2014, we were moving into multifamily. We like the multifamily space. That's grown to now about 70% of our total portfolio right now is in multifamily. Uh, we also took a big play into the industrial space. Um, industrial was strong. We, As a family, we have uh, a long history in um, the warehousing and operations businesses. Mm -hmm. And so we were familiar with industrial. We liked the product sector. We thought it was undervalued by capital markets, and we saw some outpaced performance opportunity there. Uh, we moved into that space strong through 2015, 16, 17. We built up some portfolios in Dallas-Fort Worth and Phoenix. And come 2021, um, we thought the market was as good as it was going to be. So we exited from that space. And we were able to. Well, I got to just stop you right there. I mean, talk about pretty good timing. That sector, those locations, those entry and exit points. I mean, I, I, I got to say, I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> you know, to see that clearly, that's that's um, that's pretty impressive. I, I think some of the best advice I received one time. I, I was in the self storage business for seven years, from 2000 to 2007, and. I remember in 2007, it felt a lot like 2021. And um, I, I, I'm, I was talking to a guy that was uh, ahead of ULI uh, Boston's chapter. And, um, and I told him, I said, you know, I've got this portfolio. We had 14 properties, 14 facilities. I said, I've gotten offers that just don't make sense. And he says, well, are you going to take them? I said, I don't know. I mean, I, I really like the business. I like the, the place that we're in. The, the goal is to continue to build up, um, you know, residual cash flow. And we're doing well at it. And he says, if you don't sell today, then you're buying it today at that price. Mm -hmm. He says, and every day you've got to make that decision. I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to see where the market is. And I'm going to make the decision. Am I going to buy it again today at this price or are we going to sell? And so I, I think sometimes there's, moments where there's clarity in the last two years i wouldn't claim that we had divine insight or or great clarity it was probably the most unclear time that investors have seen and that real estate practitioners have seen in a long time but there gets to be a point where it's so frothy and you just think you know this is taking a win we don't think that it's going to get better we had some real concerns on the macro level with the fed's actions and where interest rates were going. And we wanted to hedge into some positions that were more of a inflation hedging uh, characteristic. And so we saw self-storage and multifamily as the best you know, sectors to be in for that. 
we saw some so, opportunities. So that, that, yes, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's always my yeah. question, though, like as an LP, as an investor, not as a, as a developer, but as an investor, I totally agree with you. Wake up every morning and look at your portfolio and say, would I buy this again today? You know, to the extent that right. it's liquid, at least it's not always liquid, but to the extent that it's liquid, would you would you buy every element in it at, at today's market price? The problem is, though, when you cash in, when you exit something, if you have to go buy another asset, if it's if it's equally as overpriced, and you know, in 2021, it just seemed like everything was overinflated across the board. But it sounds to me like you're saying there was relative value in self storage and in multifamily as compared to those positions that you exited. I, th I think that's where the agility comes back into play. That if you have a pipeline of opportunity that mm -hmm. spread across geographical markets, across multiple real estate sectors, and across different strategies. So we're active in core, value add, and ground up opportunistic. If you have key relationships that are bringing that pipeline of opportunity in and you have line of sight to see where the market is, you can find some dislocated um, performance opportunities. You know, you can find where the capital markets have read the headlines and usually the capital markets um, are six to 12 or 18 months behind. Mm. They're seeing the headlines that, you know, industrial is the best thing ever and it's never going to go down. It's always going to be great. <laughs> They're continuing to, and then they decide, hey, let's put together a specific fund for that and let's go out and raise you know, $30 billion so that we can push it into the industrial space. And that flood of capital that's pushing it in just smashes down the cap rates, drives up the property values and helps tell this story for a season. Um, and I think there's some big macro things that are happening in industrial that are going to keep the music going for a time. You know, when you're well, talking about. Would you, yeah, would you just, it, it sounds like what you described was almost contrarian. Like when you saw people running for the entrance to that market, you're sort of ambling for the exit, you know, rather than, than going along with that crowd. Uh, we were already in the space because we liked the product. We liked the property sector. We were already in industrial. And I think that that's kind of our go, um, our fallback position is to come into things that are um, more utilitarian, less trendy. Um, you know, I started out as a retail broker and retail changes its face every three years. It's hard to keep up mm. with the evolving face of retail before it becomes functionally obsolete in some way. Industrial it has a lot more grace built into it for its owners over the longer term. So we had built up a portfolio of second and third generation industrial properties. And it just, it got to the point because of that push of of capital that was coming into the industrial space, it got to the point that it was hard to say no. We felt like it was in the best interest of investors to um, go ahead and take a win. Yep. So I, I think I get it. So so you're saying, hey, look, by default, we like the industrial space. It's our kind of space, but at a certain point, the market gets so frothy, um, it's almost dumb not to sell. And of course, you never know, you might be back buying the same asset or similar assets five years later for you know, a, yeah. a discount. So I have to ask though, of, of those sectors, we talked a little bit about industrial, multifamily and retail. What about office? Is office dead? I, I always ask that anytime I see office, I have to ask, is office dead? I'd say no, office is not dead, but it certainly has been impacted by COVID and it's to be determined on how much of an impact that is over the longer term. Um, 
you know, I think people learned a lot through the COVID experience. We learned what to do and what not to do. Uh, you know, and, and our expectation is that people will always need a place to work. You're not going to change thousands of years of, of civilization and human history that people, when they come together and they have a free flowing exchange of ideas, it's better if you and I were sitting face to face right now, Andy, we'd have a, a richer conversation as good as this is, we'd have a better conversation because those social cues, those nonverbals, those are important. And that's the way that real collaboration and idea generation takes place. So you're always going to have an office component to it where people are coming in for the face-to-face. But I think we learned a lot about what a blended model might look like. It's certainly going to be a reduction overall to some extent in the office sector. But we don't know where that's going to be, how much that's going to be. And, um, you know, one thing that I've, I've seen in the past, when you go through a correction cycle, it doesn't impact all properties the same, all mm-hmm. sectors the same all markets the same. There's islands of value preservation and there's clear winners. And then there's also large swaths of the commoditized, uh, less appealing, less amenity rich, less well-located where the fundamentals just aren't there. And the majority of the devaluation takes place in that um, property that just doesn't have the, uh, the fundamentals that it needs to continue to stay competitive. So... Would you see Humphreys probably staying away from that sector for a couple of years to see that play out? Or are you, are no, we, you actively monitoring, you know, potential deals? We look at everything. So uh, we took a play last year. Uh, we took a position in a great office asset. I was there uh, two weeks ago in the Phoenix uh, market. And so it's up on Camelback and a great, you know, class A new office building that we had conviction about. And we feel like it over the long term will be one of those locations with the amenities and the quality and the surrounding demographic strength that it's going to be a winner. And because the headlines were so out on office and everyone said office is dead, COVID killed office, it's never coming back. uh, We thought that there was a good play there where we could pick up a little bit of a basis point spread because some of the other capital players weren't as aggressive about that just because capital markets were out on office at the time. So I, And I should say, you know, our position, we are not, we don't define ourselves as a contrarian uh, firm or a contrarian strategy. That's not what we're about. We really just look at the deals on the fundamental level, at the sub-market level, and we combine a quantitative understanding of of the analysis of those factors, which you can see on paper and you can see um, just by going and doing a close market study, with the qualitative elements of a great partner. And so we look for deals that are originated through those relationships with people that we trust, where we have values that line up. We've done a lot of deals with a lot of great GPs that are out there, development partners and and folks that are in different sectors and different strategies across the country. Um, and about 90, 85 to 90 percent of the money that we put out over the last three years is with repeat partners. So it's folks that we've got track record with we know them we trust them we've got scar tissue together by working through tough deals together those are the deals where we're seeing opportunity and that happens sometimes to be viewed as contrarian but for us it it makes good sense and it's good common sense business yeah maybe contrarian isn't the right word just you know like all that money that was flowing into industrial from big institutional 
players, it's 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 kind of like players that are showing up at the sixth inning of a ball game or, or something. And it sounds like, you know, you all were just earlier in, in that space, you know, play, playing the early, you, you were the starting pitcher playing those earlier innings. Um, you know, it's been sorry, a, I, yeah. I, go ahead. Now, wall street, wall street kind of has a habit of doing that. Um, yeah. we, when we formed a when we formed our income fund, we said, let's look at the sunbelt markets, which at the time were considered second tier and third tier or tertiary markets. And we're not talking about um, small towns. We're talking about, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth and Denver and Phoenix and Atlanta, Charlotte markets that are strong. How, how long ago was this? I mean, it must have been a while. Ago. Wow. No, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying in 2012, when you when you talked about putting yeah. out, you know, good money into real estate, you had your gateway markets. Yeah. OK. And gateway markets were New York, L.A., Chicago. And then San Francisco and and maybe Seattle would be thrown into the mix in the discussion, Miami. Mm-hmm. But markets like, you know, DFW, Atlanta and Nashville and Austin uh, did not get the traction that they we believe that they should 10 years ago. And so we really just started focusing on those markets and we've had some good return and performance in those markets. So 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 again, yeah, back to that baseball analogy we might be in this the sixth inning or maybe the fifth inning of of that heavy investment into the sun belt but i mean you know i don't know where the supply curve is where the demand curve is do you think that you know is that trade getting too crowded is there going to be you know so much investment that there could potentially be an oversupply that you know overtakes the, the tailwinds there has been a lot of um, additional emphasis, a lot of additional investment placed into those fast-growing markets, but for good reason. There still is economic growth. We're still seeing, um, you know, job creation, startup businesses continuing to grow, those economies continuing to diversify. Um, the thing that's interesting, and we were talking about industrial earlier, you know, there was a time pre-COVID when you know you looked out across the markets and you would see. Um, I think the number was a 29 month supply uh, or absorption, you know, that was under development at that time, that it would take about 29 months for what was currently being developed to, uh, to be absorbed into the market and across the whole country. And then since COVID with the big wave of industrial growth, we're up about, and this is as of about three months ago. So now it's, it's definitely slowing down, but this is up about 60 to 70% additional growth, additional industrial growth. But that inventory number had dropped down to 21 months. And so what you were seeing is a, a huge growth, but also an increased demand because of these growing businesses that are continuing to absorb at a faster rate the product that was coming up. Now, that's not going to last forever. You're going to have a correction across you know, different sectors at different times. But what we've seen so far is um, a very encouraging resiliency in those what we call second tier markets or fast growing uh, U.S. economies. We've seen a very resilient market with a diversified uh, economic engine, good job creation, um, continued, you know, stickiness in terms of housing values and rent rates up until now. Now, we think 
that we're going to be in. And we just had our investor meeting, our annual investor meeting last week. And we were really transparent with folks. And we said, look, we look ahead and we see with the changes that you've had in the federal funds rate mm-hmm. and response to inflation, you're seeing an increase in cap rates. We're going to be in for a rough uh, time. It's going to be a couple years. It's going to be a few years. It's going to be a challenging place to find real returns and book wins. And we think that no one's going to be spared from that. Everyone's going to be challenged. So uh, I don't want to be overly optimistic or have rose-colored glasses, but I will say that you know, over the last 10 years, those growing economies in the U.S. have continued to show resilience and been a great place to be. So you see the rough patch and, you know, it's almost, almost everybody agrees that we're in the middle of, in the beginnings of this rough patch, you see that taking 24, 36 months to kind of work, work out of our collective economic system out, out of the market where it gets a little more balanced. I would, I would say, I see it being a prolonged time of correction. There's some, there's there's so many things at the macro level that that you can't control that you can't uh predict or you know forecast that it's i I don't put a real strong uh, confidence in the ability to look out and say this is how long it's going to take and here's what's going to happen so i'm just saying right now as we look ahead we know that inflation is still strong the fed's actions while they seem really aggressive over the last eight months um, are nothing compared to what we saw in the 60s and 70s up into the early 80s. They could um, go full Volcker, right? It could. It could. Yeah. You know, the other the other day, this is in October, I looked back and I thought, you know, 300 basis points in five months, that seems like a lot of activity in Fed fund moving. But, you know, there's actually been 23 times where the Fed moved 300 basis points in one day. And it's not in my lifetime. It happened through the 50s and 60s and early 70s. I was born in 75. And so we've got a whole you know, 40-year stretch mm-hmm. where people have been coddled and numb to what this kind of environment looks like. And I think it could be uh, pretty challenging for some time. Millennial inflation uh, assumptions <laughs> may not... May not be the the foreseeable future necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it looks like some leading indicators. It looks like inflation is beginning to roll over, not that it's going to return to 2%. The CPI will return to 2% anytime soon, but it might get back to that 5 or 6% range. But 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 the interesting thing to me is, you know, talking about cap rates, you know, you mentioned seeing triple net leases. I forget the exact number, you know, with an 11 cap or, or what, you know, just numbers that seem crazy now. Do you think that the market is ever going to get get back there? Or I, I should say, and you're in my lifetime, are we going to see corrections or valuations, you know, anything like that? Or do you think they're just kind of permanently shifted? Well, I, I would just say that what we've been living in for the last, you know, 25 plus years is not normal. Okay. So we've had a great run and especially the last, you know, 10 years post global financial crisis, you know, the last 10 years have been a great time in real estate. Uh, but really the last 25, 30 years have been a a time that is not typical. And, um, we're at a different place as a country now than we were, um, in 1983. Um, and 
there's a lot more national debt. There's a lot more of, um, you know, interesting and, uh, just really challenging situations that we haven't had to deal with yet. And so the world's changed a lot over the last 30 or 40 years. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know what's coming up, but I will tell you that, uh, the season that we've been in has been a, um, um, charmed season and it's not going to last forever. So. So if you're a value investor, then, you know, because I would say if, if you're entering a rough patch, whether, yeah. whether you're in real estate or, or really in anything, you know, if, if you buy an asset for income and you're willing to hold through ups and downs, you're pretty well positioned. But, so, but is there any value right now? I mean, is that even possible to buy value in, in this market? Well, now, now I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there's times that you um, take ground and you're able to take steps forward and you're able to grow. Right. And then there's times that when the economic headwinds are against you, the best thing that you can do is to hold your ground and to not lose. And I, I think what we've tried to do is position, you know, in our, our case, 85% of our portfolio is in inflation hedged positions right now where we're seeing day to day or month to month rent rate adjustments and the ability to flex with inflation. So we, we try to hold that. We look at the macro um, housing supply demand dynamics, and we feel like that should hold housing values. I think there will be some correction to housing values, but it's not going to be like what you saw in 2008. Sure. Um, you know, just because the supply demand dynamics are so out of whack. Um, so we think that now's a season and for the next two years, it's a season. If you can hold your ground, uh, you know, we're paying a, a 7% um, dividend right now. It's a high dividend for a real estate fund. But if we can continue to perform on that dividend, to make that dividend, to make that payment to investors as we have for the last 10 plus years, then we think that that is a strong win. We don't expect to see, you know, double digit returns. We've had 16% in the last 12 months. We've had 10 plus percent in the last three and five years. I don't expect to see low teens kind of returns in the next few years. I think it's going to be a hard time to see high single digit returns, mm -hmm. but um, that's what we're shooting for. So you adjust and you flex. I think the, um, the moral of the story where we are right now is we just say, hey, we're in a time where we're going into the storm. It's going to be a long storm. We think we're well positioned for it. Uh, I'm not losing sleep at night uh, in terms of value to find and you know harvests to win it's not that season right now right now is the season where we're going to stay uh, fairly hunkered down uh, we're still looking at opportunities but we're not aggressive and we're thankful that because we're a perpetual life vehicle uh, we're not going to be pressured into a sales posture that makes us put into a, a market where value is unknown or doubted so we're able to hold and continue to preserve so when you mentioned hunkering down, I mean, you know, as a, as a fund manager, what does that look like? Is that, you know, managing debt, uh, man, you know, debt ratios, is that being conservative with underwriting? You know, how does that kind sure. of change the, the, let's say the strategic planning for 2023? You know, for us, um, the posture of, of conservative underwriting, that's just how we've done it. Uh, we've written cap rate, underwritten for cap rate expansion, for six years now, we've never seen it, but now finally our underwriting for capital expansion finally see it now, right? <laughs> is going to come into play. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, in terms of debt, 
you know, in the last couple of years, we locked in as much as we could, either with a locked rate or with a rate cap. And so 85% of our debt, uh, which is around 50% or less uh, at a fund level, you know, overall, 85% of that's capped or, or locked. And so, you know, we've taken the steps that you can. I think you got to be prudent um, uh, in how you, you know, cash is king in this kind of a, a season. So we always keep a buffer, but we went ahead and, you know, eight months ago, put in an additional um, buffer in terms of our cash so that we'd um, be well positioned. We look at every deal. I, the way I put it is when when times are great, everybody looks at the upside potential. When times are really down, you really look at that downside risk and you look as if these assumptions don't plan, pan out, you know, if these assumptions don't prove true, are we going to have the ability to continue to perform? And I feel like we're well positioned to do that right now. Right on. So, you know, one thing that I think is really intriguing, you already alluded to this earlier in our conversation, is that your fund includes projects that you categorize as core as well as projects you categorize as value add and opportunistic. Um, you know, so it, it is, I think it is cool and it's, it's a little bit unique to see these different risk return profiles under one roof, let alone in one product. Um, is there tension, I guess, with, with having those different strategies all in one product? I mean, you know, I, like at an institutional level, I'm thinking of, you know, pensions or institutional investors that generally want to invest in things that tick a box that are sort of easily categorized yeah. that they can kind of permanently categorize. Whereas this is, is, is totally different. It seems to me it's more based on your track record and your ability to, to add value with that active management. So, you know, do you, do you find that from the product perspective, is that an advantage? Is it a disadvantage? Is it both? You know, there's, there's a lot there. Um, I, I think, you know, the thing that we see as a real benefit that we, as we're talking to investors, we say, this is something that gives us optionality at a time when the market is moving on you quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, it also, and that optionality gives us resilience because there is this agility to pivot. And I'll use um, I'll use two examples. I, I mentioned earlier when we got out of industrial and we pushed hard into uh, two different positions. One was going into uh, self-storage because you know I was familiar with self-storage. I like the product type, day-to-day um, -day rent adjustments in real time to inflation, mm -hmm. diversified rent rolls. Um, we saw opportunity to move in, not by going and paying a you know four and a quarter cap on the street with you know a direct ownership position, but through key relationships going in with existing portfolios, we became a, an LP, an equity partner to an existing um, operator, and just had a great what we think will be a long term relationship there and and good initial performance. Um, so better return that was in part due to the analysis and, and us looking at the macro level and the picture and where it was going with inflation, but the opportunity was made through this relationship. So that's, that's one piece that couldn't have happened if we were a single strategy fund. The other thing is, you know, we were active in multifamily uh, development and doing a lot of ground up. We we're equity partners with ground up developers across multiple markets. Um, 
we currently have, you know, 85 positions that we're in as a firm, um, 71 positions that we're in with HREF. And of that, if you're looking just at the multifamily piece, we've got 30 different positions across, you know, 15 markets, 12 states. And so that was our, our kind of exposure in terms of multifamily. But when COVID kicked in, remember how the construction commodities pricing just went absolutely volatile. I mean, prices went through the roof and we thought we need to actually shift into value add. Thankfully, we've got a few sponsors that are great uh, value add performers. We've done 15 deals with one. And we said we need to really focus on value add so that we can skip out on that construction commodity pricing volatility. Um, And we made a big push in 2020 and 2021. Uh, to place dollars there so we could find that yield, we could find the uh, existing performance and still see the upside potential that can put you into a, a strong return profile. Interesting. So when you come in as an LP in a deal, you know, due to the, uh, you know, the size of your fund and the amount of capital that you can deploy, do you get enhanced economics as an LP or, or GPLP economics, anything like that? I think you can look you can look at our track record and see that we've had enhanced economics, enhanced performance, and we've tried to come back and say, you know, what is really driving that? If you're looking at a, uh, uh, you know, like a value creation profile, like a private equity firm would use mm-hmm. on a company, there's a portion of it where you have, you know, preferred debt structures because you have lenders. We're at a time in the market right now where the folks that are going to be able to move are people who have um, reliable preferred debt structures. They have access to debt markets that others can't touch. Um, if you think you can go out and just kind of float it out and run it through a debt broker and find, you know, who's going to bring you the deal and shave off two basis points on the rate, um, and have that type of an approach to debt origination, you're probably going to be without a debt partner for the next 12 plus months. Um, might not take that long, but it'll take some time before the debt market's unfreeze. So we think one is having, you know, a preferred debt structure. Another is uh, having the ability to write a, a big equity check and move quickly. So it's it's that ability to move and respond quick. We are a small shop that grew out of a family office. We uh, have given, you know, c- firm commitments on equity checks anywhere from 15 to $40 million within two weeks. And so we can move very quickly when we know the partner, we understand the dynamics of the deal. We're already familiar with that market. But I think the thing that's the most impacting, if you're looking at that correlation to success, it's having a relationship with a best-in-class GP where they see you as the preferred equity partner. So you get the first call. And so we think that that first call, if they say, hey, I've got an opportunity and I'm going to call, you know, you got to call somebody first. And if you're that first equity partner call, we think there's probably maybe 100 to 150 basis points of total life cycle IRR in terms of that yield, because you are able then to have pick of the litter of the opportunities that they're seeing out in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're the second or third equity partner that's being called, you're taking the leftovers that have already been passed over by somebody else. So, Yeah, no, that that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it's almost uh, an off-market deal if you're the first call, right? There's not a market until there's two calls, right? Right. right. And you, most, of, most of the opportunities we find, 
we're not looking on, you know, LoopNet or anything like that and seeing where opportunity is. We're, we're looking ahead with these key relationships and we're saying, what do you guys see 12 months, 24 months, 36 months down the road? How can we serve you well? What, what do you need from us as an equity partner? How can we make your life easier? And then you can work us into that plan and we can become kind of a long-term strategic capital partner for you. Yeah. The, you know, the two themes that I'm hearing over and over, number one, just the agility, you know, the, the, the ability to move based on market conditions, what you're seeing on the ground, you know, with your partners and number two, just the, the partnerships and the relationships themselves. you know, you, you already mentioned that your third, third generation, I believe right. uh, yeah. in real estate development. And it, it seems to me that you're, you know, the Humphreys Capital, the whole philosophy, or at least as you've described it, is sort of um, almost born out of that viewpoint. You know, it, it's just, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. It's just a little bit of a different perspective than like a, 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 an asset manager, someone who's, who's just top down from that asset management world. It's a little bit more, you know, bottom up or, or, street level. I I'm kind of searching here. Maybe no, I, I appreciate right that, words. Andy. I, you know, I, I'd say we are, um, this is something we have to balance. Um, we're from Oklahoma. My family's been in Oklahoma for, you know, five generations. There's a, a rootedness. If you're from this part of the country, Midwestern values, family values, common sense, but there's a rootedness that you have. And so you approach your business, um, with a real understanding of how important and how dependent you are on relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay. If, if we can't do relationships well, if we can't understand what it looks like to craft a win-win structured partnership that creates alignment, not only in good times, but partnership alignment through times of challenging situations. And if we don't trust the other person to do the right thing um, and not just scalp us, um, you know, and find a way to, to, cut a bigger piece for them and to leave that with us or for us to do the same to them. I mean, that's, that's not the kind of situation that anybody wants to be in. So you want to create structures of alignment. Um, and we try to game theory, these scenario tests, you know, what does it look like if this happens or if that happens? And we do that as we're putting together waterfalls with our GPs, we do it as we're putting together, um, you know, just different, elements where we can look at different exit strategy options. What does it look like to have control of, of refi decisions, change in management, take it to the market, having some, a seat at the table at those decisions that really help direct the overall impact or performance of a deal. So we've, we've spent a lot of time doing that. I think we looked at it the other day and we've done, uh, since the 1970s, we've done well over a hundred different partnerships, um, and we've learned a lot about what makes good business good, you know, what makes, uh, we, we believe there's uh, good people out there. There's good actors. There's some bad actors. We can talk about human nature, but a lot of times the structure of the deal is going to guide and direct the steps of the parties. So, yeah, you know, that's really interesting. And, and one fascinating thing you alluded to with, with a partnership you know, human nature incentives and just structuring things in the correct way, of course. But you kind of alluded to, you know, leaving a little bit of meat on the bone, you know, making sure that both partners have a win because if, if you know, if one partner sort of finds a way to, 
legally or not, you know, finagle all the profit for themselves, there's not going to be a second project in that partnership. There's not going to be a third project in that partnership. And, you know, you mentioned that, that Humphreys Capital was kind of born out of a family office. So when you talk about those sorts of things, I'm seeing that really long-term mindset that I think is really common with family offices that's thinking about preserving and growing wealth over generations, not just over the next year or two or even just the next market cycle. That's right. I I think that long view of relationships, uh, the long view of expectation and the American entrepreneur, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit and a good pro-business environment. Um, is going to create some flourishing that wins over the long term. But on the relationships, you've got to have the long view of relationships. We put it as, you know, the difference between people that are transactional. Uh, they try to win the deal and they try to take as much um, of the cookie as they can on that first cut mm-hmm. uh, versus people that really just think, okay, what what's it going to look like for me to have a great long-term relationship that it's, uh, they walk away from it and they think, you know, I, I want to do another deal with them. There's relational equity that's been established. Uh, they treated me right. I trust them. We want to do it again. Um, you know, so we we approach business that way. And that's been something that's uh, been a key for us to establishing good relationships, not only with GPs on the development side or the value add side, but also uh, with investors. You know, we've got 640 investors. Most of those are high net worth individuals and, um, you know, people like us who are looking for a way to get access into real estate. Uh, We have a few larger institutional investors, but very few and their foundations, endowments, things of that nature. And so most of our investors that have come in are people that have owned their own business or it's a family trust or it's folks that are taking that long view and, and there's relationship really counts there. Absolutely. And and Grant, I have to say that that overlaps heavily with our listenership and our viewership. You know, our viewership for the show is is mainly LPs, accredited investors, as well as families and RAAs who are interested in illiquid or alternative investments. So that being said, could you let us know where our viewers and listeners could go to learn more about Humphreys Capital and your offerings for accredited investors? Sure. Be happy to. Thanks, Andy. So our website is HumphreysCapital.com. And you can look us up there um, also in, uh, you know, ways that you could reach out. Um, you know, for me, I'm grand at HumphreysCapital.com. Uh, I've got an investor relations team. We've raised all of our equity to date through our internal team. We haven't worked with outside placement agents or broker dealer networks. And so uh, we have worked. We're on 11 different platforms for RIAs, and we have had some um some significant growth in the last couple of years through that platform. But we have a great in-house team of investor relations professionals that have come from, you know, financial advisor backgrounds or institutional um, investor backgrounds and and can speak the language and know how to take care of folks on a one-to-one basis. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to link to that website in our show notes as always, which can always be accessed at altstv.com slash podcast. Uh, Grant, thanks again for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed you know, hearing about the, the agile long-term philosophy of Humphreys Capital. And, and if I may, you know, a little bit of the, the Midwestern charm, you know, it's a little bit of a refreshing, <laughs> different tack than the normal Wall Street angle. Hey, I, I appreciate the opportunity, Andy. Thanks for letting me come on today. 
appreciate the chance to talk. Thanks again. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 